Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, we take a look at the kingdom to come, the new heaven and new earth, and we look at the earthiness. Sometimes we think more about our souls and what that might look like. And we find, when we look at this passage of Revelation, something in between a utopian and a dystopian future. You're listening to A Compelling Vision by Reverend Galen Meyer. Our scripture lesson for tonight is taken from the last book in the Bible and the second to the last chapter. Revelation 21, the opening of John's last vision. I'll read the first four verses. And then I'll skip over to chapter 26 and read only verse 26. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into this new creation. Congregation of Jesus Christ, This passage always takes me back to June 3, 1968, as chaplain in the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines Infantry. I was with two of our rifle companies. We were part of a a search and destroy operation in the mountainous jungle that hid the Ho Chi Minh trails through which the enemy moved supplies and troops into the Republic of South Vietnam. We'd been on the operation for several days, tough days, when we dug in for the night on a mountain ridge that had been ripped up by B-52 bombers, leaving craters into which you could drop a house. Grateful for an uneventful night and having time the next morning before we had to head out, I led a brief worship service for the men. We gathered in a spot near one of the craters. It was half filled with muddy water and debris. Strewn all about were splintered trees, some with rags and the twigs wilting in dry foliage, uprooted boulders and rocks, everything blown up 
dead or dying. But across from that crater and beyond the ridge on which we sat, there was something else. Spectacular mountain peaks pushing up from the pure white clouds below us. They were covered in shades of deep, lush green with the sparkle of a stream here and there, all against a clear blue sky. It looked like a world of peace and life, and so close by. When I read from Revelation 21 that day, it seemed we could actually see something of the new heaven and the new earth and how we yearned for it. But it lay beyond the cratered ridge or that old order of things that has yet to pass away. Heaven knows I tried to keep those mountain peaks in mind as we left the ridge and went back into the jungle, but it was hard. That night we engaged the enemy in a nasty firefight. Seven of our men were killed in action. When morning came, we called in choppers to evacuate the wounded and the dead. And the days that followed weren't any easier. I'm sure all of you know from your own experience, how the old order of things can eclipse John's vision. Still, it keeps a grip on us, doesn't it? It's a compelling vision that assures us that one day God will bring to fulfillment his amazing work of grace through Jesus Christ. Now times were hard for John and his fellow Christians when he first saw the vision of the new creation. Domitian was Caesar and he took very seriously his self-appointed deity demanding that everyone publicly profess Caesar is Lord. Christians couldn't do that. Jesus is Lord, was their faith conviction, and for that they suffered brutal persecution. Though we don't face persecution like they did, the times for us today are deeply troubling as well. And I don't think I need to spell out the ways. John's vision, therefore, remains as relevant for us as it was for the Christians of his day. Now, when John speaks of heaven and earth, he uses a common expression in the Bible for the entire universe, the whole creation. But what does he mean when he says he saw a new heaven and a new earth? Does he mean a universe new in origin or does he mean the present universe, but new in quality? John's choice of words is important here. 
If he meant new in origin, a second universe, he would have used the Greek word neos. Instead, he uses the word kainos, which means new in quality. The new heaven and the new earth John sees in his vision then is this universe, but new in quality, renewed, rebuilt, made pure. The old and the new, some connection alike, and yet totally different. In this, John echoes Paul, who says that the body we bury at death is like the seed we plant. The seed grows and produces new seed. They're alike, yet different. So it is with the body we bury, says Paul. It's perishable. The body to be raised on the last day, however, is imperishable. There's a continuity, they're alike, yet vastly, totally different. So maybe the next time you go out for a walk, stepping along and swinging your arms, think to yourself, this is the body God will make new. And as your feet touch the ground and leave a print, say to yourself, and this is the earth God will make new. The Bible opens with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it closes with, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. These two lines are bookends to the Bible's story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The earth God made good in the beginning, he will make good in the end. What he created through Christ, he will redeem through Christ. You know, Adam and Eve must have been blown over with wonder when God said to them in the beginning, here, here, this is the home I made for you. Be fruitful, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, take charge of it. Take charge of it. Explore every wonderful, every marvelous potential within it and create a culture that honors me, your creator, and brings credit to you. Now, sin messed up a lot of things. We know that, including the way we pursue the mandate God gave to our first parents and by extension to us. We tend to ravish the earth instead of developing its potential with care and to build a culture that dishonors God instead of one honoring him. In spite of our sin, however, God has never relieved us of our mandate. He never fired us. Instead, he will redeem some of the things we've accomplished and make them part of the new creation. John says in verse 26, the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. 
Do you want some idea of what this will look like? Well, if you've ever been to a World's Fair, try now to think of the mother of all World's Fairs. Grand pavilions beyond number from the seven continents filled with the best of every culture in art, in industry, science, exploration, sports, agriculture, law, animal husbandry, music, you name it. I expect we'll hear some Mozart drifting from one of the pavilions, don't you? I only hope we hear some good country too. You know, three chords and the truth. According to an old story, Martin Luther was planting pear saplings in the garden of the Wittenberg Monastery where he lived with his family when one of his more smart-alecky students stopped by and asked, Herr Dr. Luther, would you spend the day like this planting these saplings if you knew Jesus was to return tomorrow? And Luther replied, if I knew that Jesus was to return tomorrow, I'd work even harder. I desperately want to enjoy these pear trees on the new earth. An old pastor, Dr. Leonard Verdine, maybe you know him, lived to be a hundred He was once a farmer in South Dakota during the Depression. Verdine once said to me, you know, the Bible has the smell of the earth about it from beginning to end. And it does from Genesis to Revelation. And you know, I much prefer, I much prefer the earthy view of our ultimate destiny pictured in the Bible rather than the one in popular imagination where we sit on cloud banks and play harps. A view satirized in a cartoon I once saw. A jazz band director in heaven was introducing the guys in the band Well, let's give it up now, folks, for Ron there on harp, and that's Hank on harp, and Jerry here on harp, and right nearby here is Bob on rhythm harp. Sadly, we often forget the full, full measure of our salvation through Jesus Christ, limiting it to the salvation of our souls. But there's much more to it than that. When we die, we go to be with the Lord, of course. But even in heaven, our salvation is provisional, not complete. We await the day when God will make all things new. Our bodies, the earth, our cultural accomplishments... 
Now, if we find all of this hard to believe, maybe we ought to pause and look at the creation around us right now. Suppose we had been present at the dawn of time when God was about to begin his work of creation. Would we have even thought it possible? If we can profess, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, can it be difficult to profess as well? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of the new heaven and the new earth. Let's look now at what will make this universe new. First, all evil will be eradicated. Nothing sinister in any particle of it. Now, John doesn't exactly put it that way. Instead, he says, and there was no longer any sea. People in John's time traveled by sea, but they feared the sea. It was mysterious and deep beyond their means of exploration. The sea could become quickly angry with storms and swallow them up. Monsters seemed to lurk beneath the surface and stir it up. A ship's captain back then always tried to keep the shoreline in sight. He had no compass. It was easy to get lost and destroyed at sea under an overcast sky. As a result, people thought of the sea as a place where evil hangs out. So when John says of the new creation, there was no longer any sea, he means to say there will be nothing evil in it. No war, no tyranny, murder, theft, no deceit, betrayal, abuse, no evil around us to threaten us and no evil within us to corrupt us. And the petition we so longingly and often make now in the Lord's Prayer will be fully realized. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next, John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God bound earth to heaven in a new covenant. And now it's fulfilled. Heaven and earth come together almost like a wedded pair. It's a spectacular thing. You can almost feel sorry for John in the rest of chapter 21 and 22. He's at a loss for words to describe it, but he tries bringing together the visions of Isaiah, Haggai, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and others. And what will the union of heaven and earth mean for us? God will move in with us in a close relationship, the way we lived with loved ones. He won't simply live among us, but with us. 
in the most profound sense of that term. We will be his family. He will be our God in the kind of relationship for which he created us in the first place when he made us in his own image and likeness. And then that nagging vacuum in the heart we often try to fill today with wealth, prestige, illicit pleasures, drugs, will be gone. The emptiness, the emptiness fully taken up with the only one who can fill it. Our loving God. The first question of the old Genevan Catechism goes like this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the ultimate purpose of human life? And the answer, to know God and to enjoy him forever. To enjoy him forever. Once God has moved in with us on the new earth, what will he do first? John answers with one of the most tender lines in the whole Bible. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Tears of grief, tears of anxiety, of pain, tears of poverty, of betrayal, abuse, tears of shame, and many more. The range as broad as human experience itself. And then John adds boldly. There will be no more death. Death is our final enemy. Some like to shrug it off and say death, it's only a natural thing, like leaves falling in October, part of nature's rhythm, you know. But do they really believe it? Or is it only a way of whistling in the dark? German pastor and theologian Helmut Tielecki tells the story of a young flyer, a story a young flyer recorded in his diary before he was killed in the Great War. One spring day when he reached out to pick a cluster of lilacs, he spotted the decaying corpse of a soldier lying beneath the flowering bush. And he drew back in horror. Not because he had never seen a dead man before, but because of this screaming contradiction between the dead man and the blooming bush. He knew, of course, that a beautiful lilac bush will one day be a withered lilac bush. That's part of nature's rhythm. 
but that a man should be lying there, dead and decaying. That didn't fit his sense of God's plan for human life. And that's why he jumped back in horror. Says Tilaki, and I quote, the young flyer sensed that the dead man lying there was somehow a strange body, a foreign body in God's flowering world. He had become aware that the death of a man is an unnatural thing. And in this case, he was closer to the world of the New Testament and its message than the people who were always driveling about the naturalness of human death. The Bible speaks, as you know, of sin and death together in one breath. Sin brought the curse of death, but God's grace, God's grace is greater than both. Through our Savior, Jesus Christ, we are set free from the power of sin and the power of death. Neither will have the last word with us. We can profess with conviction, I believe in the forgiveness of sin and I believe in the resurrection of the body. As the English poet John Donne puts it, one short sleep past we wake eternally and death shall be no more death. Thou shall die. And with that, the old order of things will have passed away. But what do we do with this compelling vision of the creation made new? where evil is eradicated, where God lives in the fullness of his glory with us, where all tears are wiped away, where death is no more. Wikipedia lists John's vision as an example of utopia. Really? Is John's vision no more than a utopian dream? The word utopia is commonly used, as you know, for a visionary state in which everything is politically and socially absolutely perfect, no want, no crime, no injustice. Ironically, however, the word is made up of two Greek words, meaning no, and topia, meaning place. Utopia, then, by definition, is no place, no place at all. Sir Thomas More popularized the word back in 1516 when he published a satire titled Utopia. It's the name he gives to an imaginary island where people supposedly live blissfully under a tightly controlling socialist government. The narrator in the book, 
who rhapsodizes over the beautiful harmony of life in utopia is named Hithloday. Hithloday, a Greek word often used for baby. Literally, it means speaker of infant gibberish. Hard to believe, but many social idealists over the years have taken something of Moore's utopia as blueprint for a just society. Marxism was an attempt at utopia, promising a classless society, equality, social justice, collective ownership of property under a benevolent totalitarian government but it had to be forced on most people, however, resulting in the deaths of 100 million people during the 100 years following the 1918 Bolshevik Revolution. The French 19th century novelist Victor Hugo rightly warned there's nothing like a dream to create the future. Utopia today, flesh and blood tomorrow. So what's the difference between a utopian dream and John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth? Simply this, the utopian dream is a human thing. It originates with people and often leads them to attempt to make all things new on their own terms, of course, and without God. And the result, the dream turns to nightmare. The vision of the new heaven and the new earth, on the other hand, is from first to last a God thing. It originates with God and assures us that he will make all things new through Jesus Christ. And the result? We can live confidently toward the future that awaits us. Our creed, the one we read earlier in the service, has it so right. Our hope for a new creation is not tied to what humans can do. And this alone, Christian friends, makes it a vision for our times, our times, when rigid political ideologies on the right and on the left begin to make utopian promises they can't keep. Our times when young people lacking hope make suicide the second leading cause of death in our country for those between the ages of 10 and 34. Our times when dystopian novels and movies depicting a world hopelessly collapsed in chaos 
take over the imagination completely, convincing people there's no real hope anywhere. The vision of the new heaven and the new earth is not only meant for our times, but for each one of us personally and for our encouragement. So let's keep that vision fixed in our minds the way we keep a treasured picture on the refrigerator door and let it, let it give us some hope and some balance as we deal with the challenges of the cratered ridge in front of us every day. Disappointments, illnesses, setbacks, broken hearts. And then let's get busy and act on the vision. After all, because Jesus is Lord, and, none, and not some past or present Domitian, because Jesus is Lord, this vision shows us where the ark of history is pointing. If this earth is to be made new, let's give thanks to God for it. Enjoy it, explore it, and take care of it. If our work is to be redeemed, let's do it now, daily, as we would for the Lord himself. If heaven will one day come down to earth, let's pursue a close relationship with God now through prayer and devotion. If evil is to be eradicated in the end, let's more closely tune our minds to the direction the Holy Spirit gives us and sweep away the dark stuff from our hearts. If God will wipe away every tear, let's get into his act now and wipe away tears with kind words and generous deeds. And if the time is coming when death will be no more, let's do whatever we can right now to value, protect, and nourish life. Yeah, even in the way we drive. We won't bring about the new heaven and the new earth in doing all of this. But we can lean toward it. We can lean toward it in active anticipation through what we do. And you know what? we're likely to find a good deal of joy and purpose in the process. Let's pray. We pray, O oh God, that you will keep the fullness of our salvation ever in our minds when we face one aspect or another 
of this old order of things that is doomed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.